Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Micah. If you don't know where that is, it's in the Minor Prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. After Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. And as you find that, I want to read something that uh, William C. Dix wrote. It is a song that we know as... What child is this who laid to rest? It was uh, put to a 16th century melody. And uh, in most of our hymnals, the, it's modified. Um, there's three stanzas, and, and uh, what most of the hymnals have done is they've taken the last four lines of the first stanza and turned that into a refrain and then erased the four lines of the second and third stanzas. And so I want to read to you the, the unedited version. Dix wrote, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthem, anthem sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high, the virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. This particular Christmas hymn asks the very important question, what child is this? And the answer to that simple question is what the destiny of all men turn. My eternal destiny and your eternal destiny and the destiny of your children hinges upon the answer to that question, what child is this? Who was the babe born in Bethlehem and how does it affect you and me, the answer to that question. Well, this morning we're going to look at Micah. Micah is a book that was written over 700 years before Christ was born. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea. He ministered to the general population of both the northern and southern kingdoms. Remember after Solomon, the kingdom split and there were the ten tribes in the north called Israel and the tribes in the south, Judah. He is quoted by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 26. Matthew quotes him in Matthew chapter 2 verse 6. And Jesus quoted him in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. Micah was sent by God to speak out against the injustices of Israel and Judah. He rebuked them for their sin, for the sin of the people, for the sin of their leaders. 
But what he also did is he promised this incredible restoration, this incredible blessing that would happen. In chapter 4 and 5, Micah focuses on how God will restore all the people and bring them into the land. And he will cause this ruler to rise up who will rule over them in righteousness. But he says, after he gives them this great hope in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, before that happens, he says, there's going to be pain. You have sinned against me, and you will experience some judgment, and you will be taken captive to Babylon. And of course, that is exactly what happened. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about the last king of Israel being smitten on the cheek, not speaking of Christ, but of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, the last king that reigned before the Babylonian captivity. And when you think about it, all of the kings who have ever lived have failed. They have failed to have perfect kingdoms. They have failed to be perfect themselves. They have failed to minister perfect righteousness. And even though some were good and better than others, they were all failures. So God promised that Judah would have another ruler. A ruler that would come to have an everlasting kingdom. Another king would come, a unique king, a king that would fulfill all of these promises, these incredible promises. And this is what we want to look at this morning in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. If you have your Bibles, you can look there and follow along as I read. He starts off, but, this is the contrast, even though the last king of or the last judge of Israel would be smitten on the cheek is Zedekiah and they would be taken off into captive captivity. But, he says this, here is this incredible promise. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now this morning, you should learn three important facts about your king from this verse. One, the birthplace of your king. Two, the position of your king. And three, the eternal nature of your king. Let's look at each of these. The birthplace of your king. Verse 2, look at there again. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. It wasn't a very famous city. Uh, It was located about five miles south of Jerusalem. It was previously called Ephratah, according to texts like Genesis 35.19. Later on, it was called Ephratah Bethlehem, and then um, it just became known as Bethlehem during the time of Jesus. Some famous people had associations there. Jacob buried his most loved wife, Rachel, there. Naomi, remember Ruth and Naomi, the story of of um, the kinsman redeemer. Uh, Naomi's family was from that place. If you remember, Naomi um, had left during a famine, had gone to Moab. Uh, Her husband died, her sons died, and she came back to Israel with her daughter Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess. And of course, because their hometown was Bethlehem, that's where they settled. Ruth, of course, was the 
heiress of the inheritance and she needed a kinsman redeemer which is where Boaz comes in Boaz then marries Ruth and the two of them then father Obed and Obed fathers Jesse and Jesse fathers David the king of Israel that is why David was born in Bethlehem now this was not an accident that Jesus would be born of David or of the tribe of Judah. It was prophesied many, many years before that, some 800 years before that. Turn to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. More than 800 years, 1,200 years. Genesis 49. Now, what's happening in Genesis 49 is this. Jacob is very old. His sons have all left Israel to escape from the famine. Joseph is ruler of Egypt. And Jacob is, is on his deathbed, and he calls all of his sons around him so that they can be blessed And he gives him these blessings, but these blessings are not only blessings, sometimes they're curses, but they're prophetic. He is actually speaking from God to his sons by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these are little micro-prophecies of what is going to happen to each tribe. And look at Genesis 49, verse 8, and notice what is said about Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches as he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares arouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Now what's interesting about this is there is this prophecy here. There is a prophecy that from Judah the scepter will not depart, nor the ruler's staff, which tells us that Judah was going to have an unbroken line of kings all coming from this tribe until Shiloh would come, uh, a designation of the Messiah, to whom will be all the obedience of the people. So way back in Genesis 49, a king is promised, a king from Judah that that would rule the people of Israel. Now every king of Judah before Christ came all failed, as mentioned earlier. There were some good kings, but they all failed. They all died. But this last ruler... This Messiah, referred to as Shiloh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as he is called in Revelation 5, will be born of this tribe of Judah, and he will come forth to be a ruler of his people. And you would think that the king of kings would be born in Jerusalem. After all, Jerusalem is the capital city. Jerusalem is the place where all um, the religious pomp is happening all the religious leaders, the temple. It is even the future site of the king's throne, the Messiah's throne. 
But no, God chose Bethlehem, a small, insignificant town, for the Messiah to be born in. And Jews understood this. Recently, I just got an email from somebody who said that, well, you know, Bethlehem is not, this is verses and talking about the Messiah's birth. It's talking about as a clan. It's just talking about a clan uh, that uh, was too little to be among the clans of Judah, but it was a clan and, and that a ruler would come from this clan, but it's not the Messiah and all this Moreau. But I'm telling you, the Jews at Jesus' time understood this to be referring to the Messiah. You remember what happened when the, when the Magi came to worship Christ, right? They came to Herod and said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod was kind of jealous, and so he wanted to kill the Christ child. So he talked to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were experts in the law, and he says, tell me, where is the Christ to be born? Of course, the reason he wanted to know that is so he could send his soldiers there and execute all the babies. And what did they say? The reply was, quote, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, referring to Micah 5.2. So the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees knew where the Messiah was going to be born, but so did the common people. This was not some secret. You need to remember that the Messiah was the hope of Israel. He was Superman for Israel. They, they knew he was coming. They longed for his coming. And they all were very familiar with those verses that spoke of him. Even the common people knew of the verses about the messianic promises. Those were the verses they loved the most. That this ruler was going to come, he was going to wipe out Rome, and he was going to set up this kingdom, it was going to be so great. And in John 7, when Jesus was preaching about the Holy Spirit coming, some of the people began to say, this man's the a prophet. And other people said, is this man the Christ? But in verses 41 and 42, some people objected. And this is why they objected to Jesus being the Messiah. John 7, the end of verse 41 and 42 says, The Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Of course, that's what Micah said right here. So even the common people knew that Micah 5.2 was a reference to the Messiah. He was the great hope of Israel. And this is the great thing about the word of God. There are so many prophecies about Christ's first coming and his second coming that the the scriptures make so many prophecies that it makes this very complex grid. And what's good about that grid is it strains out imposters. You have people like Sung Young Moon claiming to be Christ. I'm sure if you looked at his birth certificate, it wouldn't say Bethlehem of Judea on it. You see, the prophecies serve as a strainer to strain out imposters. And if you aren't born in Bethlehem of Judea, you aren't even in the running. And all those prophecies were all piled on top of each other and were so complex that only a very complex key could open all of those prophecies at once. And that key was Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson said, he came not 
in the majesty of a king, attended with his lifeguard, but he came poor, not like the heir of heaven, but like one inferior of inferior descent. The place he was born in was poor, not the royal city Jerusalem, but Bethlehem, a poor, obscure place. He was born in an inn, and a manger was his cradle, and the cobwebs his curtains, and the beasts his companions. End quote. Micah gave this prophecy 735 years before Christ came to Bethlehem. And what's interesting here, and a lot of times we don't really see what's going on here. This is incredible. It's not just incredible that there's a prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but the fact that he was born in Bethlehem is incredible. You see, what happened in between Micah's prophecy and the birth of Christ was that Israel was scraped clean. When the Babylonian captivity happened, all the people of Israel were all scraped off and all taken captive for 70 years. Many of them lost their lineage. Many of them didn't know what tribe they were from. Some of them did. And they came back and they settled in the land and the chances of... A person in the line of David being born in Bethlehem was a miracle in and of itself. And if you know the Christmas story, Joseph was of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, and Mary was also of the tribe of Judah and the line of David, and they both lived in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And it just so happens in the providence of God... That God maneuvers them through this pagan ruler and this census to get him into the place he wants them to be so they could have the Christ child there because Micah said he would be born there. That is the incredible thing about the Messiah. He fulfills every prophecy in, in amazing ways. And what we can learn from this before we move on is that God's word can be trusted. You can trust God's word. You know, you read God's word sometimes, you think, boy, that is such a neat promise, but, huh, that is hard to believe. It may be hard to believe, but I'm telling you, it is true. God may not fulfill it in your timing or when you think it should happen, but he will fulfill it. He'll fulfill every prophecy, just like he said, when he so desires, exactly, and he will not miss one promise. And when God said through Micah 735 years before Christ was born, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, it was over. He was going to be born there and nothing could stop it. And so you need to ask yourself sometimes, do, am I doubting the promises of God? There is nothing that breeds despair and anxiety and worry and fretting more than doubting the promises of God. I mean, if you want to thrust yourself into the dungeon of Doubting Castle, doubting is the quickest way to get there. When you find people who are depressed and distressed and worried and anxious, it is all because they are torturing themselves on the rack of their own doubt. They are choosing to not believe God. Doubt is the antithesis of faith. Faith believes in and trusts the word of God. And to not believe God and to not trust in his word is to doubt. It is a sin. And when we are doubting and when we are sinning, we are despairing and giant despair beats us. 
the quickest way to get out is to remember the promises of God. And so we learn that just as a side note from here. This is just one of many, many examples of the flawlessness of God's promise keeping. He keeps it exactly like he says. But the second thing we learn from this text is not only the place of the Messiah's birth, but also the position of your king. Look at verse 2 again. Notice what it says in the middle of the verse. From you, referencing Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. Now notice that the text says a ruler will go forth for me. Bethlehem is the launching pad that the Messiah will go forth from. But God the Father is mission control. That's what for me means. It means he will go forth for me to do my will, in other words. The King James, I think, translates this to me. It's not the best translation. For me is the good one. He, he tells us that this babe to be born is going to go forth for God as a representative for God. To do the will of God. And John, the apostle, John was a champion of this. In John chapter 5, verse 37, 644, 657, 818, 1036, 1249, and 2021, he tells us that Jesus was sent to do the Father's will. John was just really into this Father's will business. He wanted us to know thoroughly that Jesus came to do the Father's will. And that's all, to do the Father's will. He was emphasizing what this text is telling us here. He will go forth for me. The text continues to tell us more about the one born in Bethlehem. Look at what the text says. He is to be a ruler in Israel. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born, the text says, to be a ruler. Now, did you just see what happened in this verse? This is great. Notice what happened in this verse. Do you see a gap there? One will be born in Bethlehem to be a ruler. The born part has already happened. The ruler over all Israel has not happened yet. There is a huge gap here. And this is what is difficult about prophecy. Sometimes you're reading a verse and you come to it and you look at it and it seems like it's just all smashed there together. Sure, he's born, he's a ruler. No, there is a gap there. If you were to take a rifle and aim a rifle and look down the sights of something, when your cheek is up against a stock and you're looking down the sights, the sights look like one. There's a little V and then there's a little bead that sits in the V. And you cannot tell there is a distance in between there. They look like one as you're looking down the barrel. But when you turn the gun sideways and pull it away from your face, you can see there's a gap in between. And that's how a lot of prophecies are. When you look at them in the text here, they just see like they're right together. But yet when you get back and you look at them in the whole picture of Scripture, you see there is a huge gap. Jesus has already been born, but His coming to rule over all Israel is still to be fulfilled. And this is exactly what happened in Isaiah 9-6, right? For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given, gap, and the governments will rest on His shoulder. 
And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First, there is a child to be born. Then there is the promise of all the governments resting on his shoulder, which hasn't happened yet. The first part has, the second part hasn't. And there's a lot that goes in between there. Like the death of the child. And the plan of God to save people until he comes back to set up his kingdom. Isaiah speaks of both coming in one verse just like Micah does. But here he says he is to be a ruler in Israel. I mean, this is what the Magi said, right? When they came to Herod, do you remember what they said? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? And that's why Herod was so jealous and so angry that he sent out his soldiers to execute everybody in Bethlehem once he found out that that is where the Christ child was to be born. You see, Jesus was not born so he could become a king. He was king. When a dog is born, it doesn't become a dog with time. When a child is born, it doesn't become human in time. When the sovereign God of the universe becomes a man, he doesn't become sovereign. He is sovereign. He is born king. And this is exactly what happened when Christ was born in Bethlehem. He was born king. Do you remember at the end of David's life, actually you wouldn't know this if you read 2 Samuel, and 2 Samuel it's placed at the beginning of his life for emphasis, but it happened at the end. Nathan came to David and he gave him a promise. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And in this Davidic Covenant, he promises David what will happen to him um, or his descendants after he dies. David is old. This is part of what Nathan told him. It's in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. Reading from 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, this is what we read. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son and I will not take my loving and kindness away from him as I took it from him who is before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Now, did you see that word forever? Three times it appears. I will establish his throne forever. I will settle him in his house forever. His kingdom will be established forever. Now, this poses a problem because the candidates who can rule forever are very few. As a matter of fact, there's only one. But he says he would be a man from his descendants of the line of Judah, that he would establish his house and his throne forever, 
And David would know that he would mean that he would have to live forever because whoever this person is, if he's going to reign forever, he must live forever to reign forever. And that leads us to the third point we learn from this text. This is the most remarkable statement about Christ. It's not as remarkable that he would be born in an obscure place like Bethlehem, even though he was the king of the universe, king of kings and lord of lords. That was remarkable. But what was really remarkable is what we read in the last part of verse 2. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That is remarkable. Micah explains two characteristics of the child to be born in Bethlehem. First, his goings forth are from long ago. Now think about that. How many children do you know that you could say at the time of their birth, oh, they've been going on from long ago? It's hard to find children like that. This babe existed before being born. So the first thing this phrase tells us is that the child to be born had a pre-existence, that he existed before being born a child. Now that should give us a hint of his identity. And isn't this exactly what what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8:58? The Pharisees, he was talking to them, and he says this, Before Abraham was born, I am. They didn't like that. They were claiming Abraham as their father, and Jesus says, guess what? I was before him. And he uses the phrase, and before Abraham was born, I am. I am the ego and me, which was the parallel of the memorial name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah in the Old Testament. He claimed to be the eternally existing God before Abraham. And of course, they picked up stones because they knew what he was saying and they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. I mean, we need to realize that when Jesus was born, before his umbilical cord was cut, he was... The eternal God. The eternal God. Now, someone could argue, well, you know, Jack, he existed before being born because he was an angel. And, and you know, maybe like the Mormons teach, you know, he was an angel. And so he existed um, before. And, um, and so, you know, even though he did exist before, he is not, you know, eternal in the absolute sense. Like God is eternal. The problem is, is this last phrase. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The King James says his goings forth are from, have been from of old, from everlasting. The theological word book of the Old Testament says this phrase is used more than 300 times to indicate indefinite continuance or duration. Charles Feinberg, who is probably one of the finest Old Testament scholars who has ever lived, he trained to be a rabbi, and after getting all of his rabbinical training, then became a Christian, and then, you know, I think he got two more earned doctorates, knew, I think, 37 different languages, said, the phrase of this text is the strongest possible statement of indefinite duration in the Hebrew language. End quote. It is the same 
wording used in Psalm 92, which says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Micah could not have been clearer. This child who was born at the time of birth was the everlasting God whose goings forth are from long ago, even from the days of eternity. The word eternal is one that is used to describe several things in the scriptures. You know, we might talk about angels being eternal. They are beings who, who are created at a point in time and then they just continue on into the future forever. We can talk about believers who have eternal life, which is not only a duration of life. Sure, it talks about us being born and saved and then continuing on, but it's talking about a quality of life. A quality of life we enjoy because we are eternally in the presence of God because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We are eternal in that respect. Now, it doesn't just mean duration, though. Because unbelievers, they continue on eternally in hell. But eternal life is another quality. But with God, eternal is a whole new dimension. God is infinitely eternal. He is eternal to the highest degree. God lives at all times, all at once. God does not have to wait for the future to come. He is there. He doesn't have to look back at the past. He is there. He is in all times simultaneously because he created time in the midst of his being. God exists apart from time and creation, apart from everything we know. And all the ages of all history are nothing but a speck in the infinitude of his being. Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology describes God's eternality with these words, and you'll have to listen real careful. This is pretty mental. That perfection of God, whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits or time limits, and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible presence. And think about that. The babe in Bethlehem was very God of gods. When the shepherds came and found Jesus at his incarnation, he was the ancient of days. And after he started growing up and, you know, when two months after his birth and people would come up to Mary and say, Oh, how old's your boy? Oh, he's eternal. And she wouldn't be lying. We see the same thing in Isaiah 9-6, don't we? For unto us a child is born and a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Eternal Father. Jesus was born older than the world, older than the universe, as the Ancient of Days, as the child in Bethlehem. The question is why? Why? Why be born? Why grow up? To just be a ruler? 
He was already a ruler. He was already in glory with the Father before the world began. And after he created the world, he was the sovereign ruler of all. He didn't need to be born to be a ruler. He was a ruler. No, he needed to be born to be a savior. A savior who would save men to rule over. That's why he was born. You see, when the angels were created, some of them rebelled, right? We call them demons or evil spirits. And their part will be in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. They are unredeemable. They have no chance to be saved. They sinned and God judged them justly because of their rebellion and now they will suffer forever in the lake of fire. Adam and Eve, they sin. They plunge the whole human race into sin. And we are all sinners. And if God wanted to, he would be just to cast us all into the lake of fire forever and ever. That would be just, just like the angels who rebelled. But you know, if God's going to rule over some people, some humans forever, he's got to save them. They need washed clean. They need forgiven. They need atonement. They need justification. Otherwise, they can't be in his presence. They can't be glorified. Because they deserve the wrath of God. That is why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him at his baptism, he said, Behold, not the ruler of Israel, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is why John says in 1 John 4.14, And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus was not your average Hebrew baby. He was born to be the savior of the world. And isn't that what what the angel told Joseph in the dream? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And you shall name him Jesus, which means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. The same thing was told the shepherds. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. Now we may read texts like that from our Western mindset, and we're driving cars, and we don't do sacrifice and all that stuff, and we just think, oh yeah, that's neat. But we need to look at it from what that original audience understood that to mean, the Savior, What did they understand that to mean? They knew this. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. They knew that God gave them a sacrifice to atone for sins. But they also knew that those sacrifices weren't working. Because they kept having to give them over, over, and over again. They needed a perfect sacrifice. And if you're a man who needs redeemed, you've got to find a perfect man. If you're a man who needs to be forgiven and to have perfect atonement, you have to find another man who is perfect, who is willing to give his life in your place as a substitute so that you can receive the benefit of his righteousness and he can receive your just punishment. 
And that is why he was born. That is why he was born. You see, during the first century, any godly Jew would understand the sacrifice of animals. You know, right now you may be sitting out there and thinking, well, you know, yeah, they sacrifice animals. But let me just picture this for you. Every year, maybe two or three times a year, if you live close to Jerusalem, maybe weekly, you would take animals, you know, things like bulls, goats, calves, lambs, large animals with lots of blood. You'd lead them into the temple. You would shackle them up. All these priests would lift them up and lay them down. You would put your hand on their head. You would confess your sins. Then you would get a knife. And you would cut their carotid artery, their throat. They're alive. Their heart is beating. And all that blood would gush out, spurt out. And in a few moments they would be dead you would have executed that innocent animal in your place you would have done it it was common everybody did it everybody knew about it everybody knew what it took to save it was not some mystery it was not some some uh, marvel that that in order to save people, there would have to be a death. No, you have to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you're going to forgive people, there's got to be bloodshed. And if you're going to forgive men, it has to be perfect blood, human perfect blood. And that's why the priests, as they, they would offer the blood up on the altar to atone for sins that sometimes during the during the big feast, there was literally a small river of blood coming out of the temple, flowing in a, a channel carved in the temple mount. And people, just after people, they'd lift them up there, kill the animal, lift them up there, kill the animal, all day long, killing, 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 killing. Why? Because men are sinners, and someone has to pay the price. But they all knew that those sacrifices weren't doing it. They weren't doing the trick because they had to keep offering them. They needed a once-for-all sacrifice, and that's why Christ came. That's why He is the Savior. And so He came, and He died, and He suffered, and He took all of our sins upon Him so that all we have to do is repent of our sins and receive Him as our own Lord and Savior, and He will forgive us and wash us clean. Because of what he did, not because of what we did. We can't be good enough. No, we try to do what's right because he saves us, not to be saved. Salvation is unto works, not by works. And so he did die. He was buried and he rose again to prove to both men and angels that he had conquered death, that he was the perfect sacrifice because death could not hold him. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem to do the will of the Father, and that was to be the Lamb of God. But the second part of the verse here hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. As sure as that first part came to pass, as miraculously as it did, how God maneuvered them to Jerusalem so Mary could give birth to the Messiah there, so he will come again 
to be ruler, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And so this Christmas, I want to encourage you with six different things. Remember that Christmas is knowing what God, that God is faithful to fulfill His promises perfectly. You can trust in every one of God's promises. He is never delinquent concerning them. Secondly, Christmas is realizing that God's timing is perfect. Oh, it might not be your timing, but it's His perfect timing. You need to realize that at the proper time, Christ was born of a woman. God wasn't late and He wasn't early. All this happened, sure, after Micah gave the prophecy, there was the Babylonian exile, and then the Persian dominance, and the Greek dominance, and then the Roman dominance. But all that set up such a perfect, a perfect opportunity for the gospel. Because when Alexander, right before the Roman Empire came, he made a universal language called Common Greek. So everybody in the whole Mediterranean basin spoke the same language. Really good if you want to get out a message. The Romans were so fanatic at building roads, every road leads to Rome, while I'm telling you, God used those every road to spread the gospel. So Jesus was born at a perfect time of universal language and a perfect time when there was an intense traveling system established. And he died so that his apostles could go out at that time and launch the gospel into the world to save men. Third, Christmas is understanding that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about his first coming and because of that we can know all the prophecies about his second coming will come true also. He will come again like a thief in the night. And this time he won't come as the lamb but the lion of the tribe of Judah. Fourth, Christmas is remembering that Jesus was born to do the Father's will and it was the Father's will for Jesus to die on the cross so he could be the Savior of the world and your Savior. Fifth, Christmas is understanding that you are a sinner, that Christ is a Savior, that Christmas is, the only, is only a blessing when you repent of your sins, when you embrace Christ. If you don't, you're mocking God. Six, Christmas is knowing that unimaginable, incomparable, incomprehensible glories beyond which you can imagine await for all those who do place their faith in Christ and receive eternal life from Him. In closing, I will read this statement by Thomas Watson. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that he might be, but we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in a manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold the love that surpasses knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Father, if our hearts be not stones, as Watson says, may we be diligent to live out the truth that you have placed before us and be diligent to share the message which you have commanded us to share. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again in the third day, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And Father, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And Father, if there are people here who have not repented of their sins, who are holding on to their life, holding on to their control, trying to just sin for a little while longer, thinking that maybe you know tomorrow, the next day, or next year, or later on in life, they are going to repent and receive you later so they can indulge in sins, help them to realize that life is but a vapor and we don't know how long we'll live. And Father, when we get there, our hearts may be so hard and the opportunity may be passed. Father, I pray that all of us would embrace Christ this Christmas. For those of us who know him as the Savior and Lord and King that he is, for those of us who don't as a Savior and Lord for the first time, And Father, we thank you for this time of year and we can focus on this great topic. May we not be Christmas Christians, but Father, Christians who celebrate Christ all year. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have somebody you want,